Swing. Let's pray. Once again, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, for this privilege, to be able to listen to you. And that's what we ask, Lord, that you would speak truth to each one of us. Help us to discern and to filter out and to hear your voice through all that I say and through what you say in your word. So, Lord, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Couldn't think of a title for this week's sermon, so I called it God, Jesus, Bible. Isn't that the normal answer for Sunday school kids? The answer's got to be God or Jesus or Bible. So what's the title? I don't know. You figure it out. You write a title. There you go. You think about this. There are three stories this morning. Rhonda has read the third one to us. And before we jump in, I wanted to give sort of like an overview, a step back and look at John. It's a brilliantly written gospel. There are both Pastor Charlie and I are seeing things that we have not seen before in the Gospel of John. It's, it's much deeper than we had, than I have encountered before. And there's just many layers of truth. And the more you look at it, um, we look at each other each week, Pastor Charlie and I, where are you going with this? And it's like, what are you going to say and what are you going to leave out? And uh, so we've been wrestling with that. And this chapter is exactly the same. I spent three or four days this week quite literally praying, so which part of this do I do? Which part? And it wasn't until about Thursday night, Friday morning, that it became clear, oh, I'll do the first bit. And so I did that. And then I thought I should have just, uh, the first three bits, I should have just done the first bit. There's enough in that. And even then I'm not going to exhaust it. So we're going to do an overview. And then we're going to look at these three bits and I'm going to try and work through that. I'll probably spend more time on the first bit and then less time on the second bit. And by the time I get to the third bit, it'll be a 30-second bit. And then we'll take some time to respond to that. Um, and we'll see how we go. So overview of John. Uh, in, back in John chapter 1, we have seen that Jesus is the Word. And the Word is God. He's the Creator and He is the light of the world. I'm just reminding you of these things that John said to us. Uh, that, that word, the Son of God, God the Son, became flesh, took on human flesh, and he is the one who reveals to us what God is like, God the Father. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he is the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit, pays for our sin, and gives us his Spirit, third member of the Trinity. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is the Messiah, the Promised One, which is where we're going to go this morning. He's the King of Israel. He's called Rabbi and Teacher. And at the end of John chapter 1, he is the ladder between God and man. Remember the angels going up and down on the ladder that Jacob saw? And that's Jesus. He is the connecting point between God and us. John is emphasizing that Jesus, in fact, is the one who is the fulfillment of a prophecy, a statement that Moses gave about the, um, the prophet who is to come into the world. I'm sorry that's really small, but it says this, if you can't see it. Uh, the Lord your God will raise up, this is Moses speaking, raise up for you a prophet uh, like you. He'll live among you. <clears throat> you must listen to him. I'll raise up a prophet like you from among your fellow Israelites, and I'll put my words in his mouth. He will tell you everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to the words 
my words, that that prophet speaks in my name. Moses says very clearly, it's a very significant verse in Deuteronomy chapter 18, that there is a prophet who is coming. Like me, Moses says, and Moses is one of the most significant leaders, if not the most significant leader in the Old Testament. He writes the law. He's the deliverer, the saviour. He's the one who, uh, through the Exodus, delivers God's people and goes through on dry land and then leads them in the wilderness. And then because of a sin that he committed, um, he is not allowed to enter the promised land. But he does enter the promised land after he has gone because of the transfiguration It is Moses and Elijah who appear to Jesus and quite literally and talk to him about his exodus. That's the language that is used. So in, at the end of John chapter 1 also, John has pointed out for us, um, Philip found Nathaniel, told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the one also whom the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth calls him the son of Joseph because that was the popular understanding. Of course, we know he's not the son of Joseph. Stepson, if you like. So that's where we're going. This, and John has written his book quite cleverly. It's in five different major sections and each section is a chiastic structure, which means there's something at the beginning and something at the end of each section. Starts with that, ends with that, or something very similar, and they cross over, which means the central bit of it is significant to pay attention to. So I'll point that out for you in one. There are seven signs that John picks up on of all of the miracles. What's a sign? We're used to signs. There are signs around the building. There are signs on the street. Signs point to something. They either point the way or they point to what to do. They give an instruction. The seven signs, miracles, John calls them signs because they point to Jesus. The miracles point to who he is and there are seven of them and all of the signs point to Jesus is in fact this prophet that was promised he is the fulfilled the fulfillment of all of the old covenant in fact he replaces the old covenant with a new covenant John carefully and subtly outlines that for us if we have eyes to see here are the seven signs that Jesus turned well you can read have a read of that The first and second sign, the heal, turning the water into wine and the healing of a son, are both in Cana. They are the first set of bookends, chapters 2 to chapter 4. What was the very first miracle that Moses did, the first plague? Turned water into blood, the Nile, Moses. What's the first miracle Jesus does? Turns water into wine. What was the last plague? death of the firstborn son. What's the second sign Jesus gives? Heals the firstborn son. Do you see how there are these subtle parallels that if we have eyes to see, we will pick them up? The third sign is the healing of that man we looked at last week who was 38 year old. He is a man who had been an invalid all of his life and Jesus walks in and heals him. He restores somebody to worshipping God. Somebody who wasn't allowed to go into God's presence is now allowed to go into God's presence. That's what Jesus does. He, makes it, he restores us. He enables us to connect with God. Well, this morning we're going to look at the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. That's signs 4 and 5. <clears throat> when Moses led Israel out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea 
on dry ground, right? And they got to the other side and they started complaining and whinging, we don't have nothing to eat. So what did God give them? Manna from heaven. What are the two signs Jesus does in this chapter? Bread from heaven. He feeds 5,000 with five small loaves. And in fact, in John chapter 6, as you read on in the 30s, verses 30 and 40, they'll talk about manna, that he is the bread of life. He is the manna. And that Jesus walking on the water, what's that about? It's paralleling that he is the one who, God is the only one who can do that, but he walks on water as if on dry ground. He alone does it. And it's this Old Testament illusion, this parallel, that Jesus is the one who was promised. He is fulfilling all the Old Testament types and promises. Here is one other before I jump in. When Jesus at the wedding in Cana, the very first miracle, he's at a wedding and they run out of wine. And then Jesus turns the water into wine. And the master of the ceremony says, the latter is much better than the former. Now, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, what John is alluding to is, we're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the old has gone, the old covenant has gone, and the new has come. The new wine into new wineskins, and the new is better. If you can see it, you can see it. If you can't, just think I'm off my rocker and we'll move on. But it's worth contemplating and thinking about, and that's not the end of them. There's much, much more, even in these earlier chapters. And I'm only in the first half of John where I've been doing this study, so I'm not sure if how far it'll carry through. So Jesus is the one Moses wrote about. He's the promised prophet and the hoped-for king. He is the one, Jesus, who achieves the new exodus and who returns us to God. Let's have a look at these miracles. Um, just did that. It's in three sections, so I'm going to give you section by section, and I'll make some application comments as we go, but really we're just going to work our way through this pretty carefully. Jesus feeds 5,000 plus. How many people were there that day? Nobody knows. The Bible tells us, this is a remarkable story, A, because all four Gospels tell us this. Besides the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that's the only thing that all four Gospels tell us about, the feeding of the 5,000 men. Why? Something special about it. There's something we've got to notice. God's drawing our attention to it because he tells us four times. And each account adds something slightly different, adds to it and fleshes it out. And John has one of the most succinct definitions of it. There are 5,000 men. Matthew and Mark and Luke basically tell us that's not counting women and children. How do you know there were children present? Because it's a child who brings Jesus the loaves and the fish. So women and children were present, and, and estimates range from there are 10,000 people there to 25,000 people there. 5,000 is a lot. Let's just go conservative and double it, make it 8 to 10. Jesus is going to feed 8 to 10,000 people, and just for the sake of ease, let's make it 10, just double it. You know, not every wife would have been with a husband and, but, and not every couple had one child. They had several children, so how many were there? Believe all eight. Here we go. Sometime after this, this is after chapter 5 and the healing of the guy who was 38 years of age. And we're not talking like next week. It's not immediately after. When you look at the Gospels and you do the time frame, this is 12 months, 18 months later. 
Okay? Lots of stuff has happened, which is important background for you to get as we go through this. Jesus crossed um, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's gone from, if I understand it, <clears throat> I mean, not, I get this from books and maps. I haven't been there. I haven't seen it. Uh, Pastor Charlie has, and if you have, then you have a great advantage that you can imagine where Capernaum is and where Bethsaida is, and that's the trip that they're doing. They're going across like the top of the, the Sea of Galilee. They're going from the um, northwest corner across to the northeast corner, if you like, something like that. Just imagine that. Um, and there's a great crowd. They've seen him do lots of tricks. They saw the signs, the miracles. And of course, they're attracted to him, so they follow him. He's going by boat. They're walking around the coastal line. Um, <clears throat> um, Jesus went up on a mountainside when he got there with his disciples. How many disciples did the Lord Jesus have? Seven. Seven. Oh, 70. 72. How many disciples did Jesus have? Put up a hand for 12. <laughs> this is one of those questions, isn't it? Um, I think it's 12, but I don't want to say it because it could be wrong. <laughs> In this gospel, if you have a look at it, go to verse, I think it's 59 from, mm, that may not be right. Towards the end of the chapter, verse 16 and following, it talks about that his disciples thought this was too hard teaching and they no longer followed him. So when it says he sat down with his disciples, it's certainly the 12, but there are other disciples who are present as well. Okay, because it's these others, not the 12, these others that will walk away from him in John chapter 6. So he sits down with a group of people, 72, whatever, lots of people. Um, and John tells us, and the Jewish Passover was near. John tells us, I think it's about four Passovers. He's the only gospel writer who does that. The others mention one. And so that's where we get how long did Jesus minister for? Three, three and a half years? We get that from John when you put his timetable together. So that's the background. Crowd, they've moved. He's gone across the other side. Jesus looked up, saw the great crowd coming. He turns to Philip, who's from Bethsaida. This is his hometown. This is his area. John chapter 1 tells us that. And Jesus says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? How many people? Eight, ten thousand. Is there a subway nearby? <laughs> Maccas, where are you going to buy bread to feed these people? What, is Philip, what would you do? I want to point something out to you. Jesus asked him, where would you buy? I don't understand the test. I don't, if Jesus didn't ask that, if he asked it another way, how are we going to feed these people? then I would have expected an answer. Because Jesus said, he said this only to test him. He already knew he had in mind what he was going to do. Hey, Phil, where are you going to buy enough food to feed these guys? Jesus already knows what he's going to do. So why does he test him? Well, because God always tests us, doesn't he? He stretches us. He tests us in all sorts of ways. Um, you get an unexpected bill. You get news that's not pleasant. You get house repairs or car repairs, a shock. That's a test. What do we normally do? Well, we look at our resources and we try to see what we can do. Um, we seek to solve it ourselves. What should we do? This is a habit for us to grow and learn and develop. We should look to him. 
Does it mean you don't do that? No, it doesn't mean that. It means you still do that, but in the process you look to him. If you have the financial resources to do it and you can afford to do the repairs, well, then you should look to him and give thanks. Thank you for providing me with the resources to cope with this. If it's something you can solve yourself, you have the skills and the abilities to be able to do it, then you should fix it and then you should say, Lord, thank you for giving me the ability and the thanks. You should always look to him. That's the habit for us to develop. And sometimes God will deliberately put you in a situation like Phil in this one, where I don't have the resources, I don't know how to do this. Lord, help. You do it. Now, I don't know what's going on for you in your life, but that could be a relevant word for you. It's certainly a habit for all of us to develop. Please don't hear me saying we do nothing, we put our hands in the pockets and all we do is pray. No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying, before you do something, include God in your thinking and in your processing and do life with him, everything. Um, yeah. Like we had this conversation Wednesday night at our Master Life group and, so, and I made the comment that I don't get up in the morning and say, Lord, what socks am I going to put on today? Well, today God said, no, Daryl, I don't want you to wear socks today. He doesn't. On those sorts of things, if I'm happy, he's happy. What are we having for lunch? Does the Lord care? No. No response. Okay. <laughs> There are some things where God just gives us a brain and our desires and so on. But even with those, they're not excluding him. He's to be involved in it. Anyway, Jesus gave Peter, uh, Philip this test. And Philip's response is to say that, you know, look, 200 denarii, which is, I've translated it as, 33 weeks wages. The NIV says six months, but it's more than six months. It's 200 days. When you're taking into account the Sabbath, then that's about 33 weeks, 33 weeks and a few days. And it's impossible to work that out because we're all on different incomes and, you know, money, things change and so on. But that's what it is. 33 weeks of wage for the common labourer. A denarii was the wage for a worker for one day. Well, 200 of them. And Philip has gone, even that amount of money is not enough to buy bread so they even get a little bit. You get a lick. But you don't get enough to fill you. So... Philip is looking, doing the calculation, and then I love this. Another of the disciples, Andrew, Andrew's always bringing somebody to Jesus, and Andrew is not famous because he is Simon Peter's brother. Rhonda is not famous because she is Pastor Darrell's wife. Well, it's true, isn't it? Oh, yes, it is. When I go to Westside, I'm not famous. I'm Rhonda Evans's husband. Depends on your context, doesn't it? And of course, Rhonda is famous. Oh, sweetie, if not in anybody else's eyes, you are in... I'll stop. <laughs> Another one of the disciples, Andrew, spoke up. This is funny. He must have overheard the conversation. He brings this little guy, and he brings him, and he's got five Dutch pike uh, pancakes. <laughs> little things. Don't think bread loaves of bread and don't think bread rolls. Flat bread, little, for a child, and two fish fingers. Did they have fish fingers in those days? Of course they did. You buy them at Woolworths in Bethsaida. 
and probably sardine or something like that. But I like what Philip's, uh, Andrew says. He says, here's a little guy. He's got five loaves. He's got two fish. And then it suddenly dawns on him. What are they among so many? He literally brings this little bit of food expecting that to help. Even that's significant, isn't it? Philip and Andrew point out for us, underlining, this is a hopeless situation. This is impossible. Is that the situation you find yourself in? Are you in a difficulty? Well, Jesus again takes control. Make the people sit down. The other gospel writers tells us they sit down orderly in groups of 50 or in groups of 100. Um, and that's where we're told. And there were about 5,000 men not counting women and children. Jesus then, and this is remarkable, Jesus, that little guy's lunch, the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus doesn't reject it. He didn't need it. He knew what he was going to do. But he doesn't scorn the little gift. He doesn't scorn the little offering that we give. He takes that. And the words that John uses are significant. He took, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. What does that sound like? Communion. And John doesn't have a communion episode in his gospel. Interesting. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, looked up, because all good things come from our Heavenly Father. And he distributed, this is key, to offset some of the ridiculous interpretations, and he distributed to the disciples, how many? Not 12, 70, 100. He had disciples. Five loaves, 5,000 men. How many times did he break it? Or at least 1,000. That's a lot of this, isn't it? And if you've always imagined he broke it and he gave those two halves to one of the disciples, then he, they probably had a basket. And Jesus is filling the basket. That's how I imagined it. But... I mean, you watch. He breaks it, gives it away. And it's back again. And he breaks it, and he gives it away. The creator is creating food right before them. And he does that. And he feeds 5,000 men, plus women and children. And he feeds them to the extent. And then he does the same thing with the fish. And then it says, and when they had all had enough to eat, one commentator says, the little boy bought his lunch. They all had their own lunch. They had their own baskets. They bought their own food with them, but they weren't going to go open it, and they weren't going to share it. And when they saw the little guy come with his five loaves and two fish, they were so guilt-ridden and stuffed, they all brought out their food, and they shared with one another. It's not what it says. It says, he broke it, he gave it, they distributed it, and they ate what was distributed. And so they didn't bring the food themselves. Jesus is creating this food. So when they'd all had enough, he says to his disciples, gather up what's left. Don't let anything be wasted. There's a good word, isn't it? Let nothing be wasted. You could meditate on, meditate on that truth, those phrases, and grab some truth out of it. Don't waste your time. Invest it for the kingdom. Don't waste your resources. Let nothing be wasted. Don't waste an opportunity to be good, to be nice, to be a witness, 
So they go around and they gather it up. <clears throat> now, this is what made me think about the disciples. If there were 12 of them, that would have taken a long time. But if there's more, if there's 100 or so of them, something like that, would have been still taken time, but it would have been done a lot quicker. So the disciples are going around with their baskets and they are... You know, people are eating and they finish and say, have you finished? Yes, thank you. And they take it. They take whatever's left over. Pick it up off the ground. It was a grassed area or a carpet or whatever. And lo and behold, significantly, how many baskets are left? Twelve. Why twelve? Jesus is the new Moses who came and led the people of God out and delivers them and reconnects them with God. How many tribes were there? How many disciples are there at the end of the chapter? Twelve. Which is why he has twelve disciples, because he's the new Israel. So each disciple gets a basket. It's not a basket. When Jesus feeds the 4,000 and they pick up seven baskets, they're those baskets. It's a different Greek word. This basket is a little one, like a carry-it-on-your-hip basket full of food. In other words, Jesus supplied enough food for each of the 12 disciples, apostles, to have lunch for the next day. When Jesus supplies, he certainly, he's not stingy, is he? He gives generously. Question, why did Jesus break the bread? I don't know. But it's pointed out to us that he did that. One commentator drew the conclusion he broke it to show, and he gave part of it to show that whenever we give part of what we have in for him and for his work, he always replaces it. Maybe. That's certainly Rhonda and my testimony. When we went to theological college, we went and we knew that we needed $120 a month. That tells you how long ago we went to theological college. And we had 100, $120 a week. And we, had and we had $100 a week. We had done the maths and the calculation. We were short. And we still felt God was calling us. We had $16,000 in our savings. I can remember these figures. And I thought, oh, well, we'll tap into that. We'll be fine. Every week, nearly every week, and if not every week, then it was like every couple of weeks, somebody would come up to us and give me an envelope because I would be preaching in different churches or in the church that we were assigned to or whatever. Someone would come and say, God wants me to give you this, and in the envelope there would be a $20 note. Not more, just what we need. Sometimes it might be $40, and then we wouldn't get one the next week. At the end of the year, I mean, God met our needs. I can, this is not relevant, I just like telling those stories. I can remember a time when we were flat broke. We didn't have, not a note and we went through our sock drawer and our undies drawer and everywhere looking for coins. You ever done that? Yeah. Yep. We're not, you know, unique. Everybody's, many people have been like this. Looking for enough, enough to find so we could buy a loaf of bread and a bottle of milk from the college kitchen. You couldn't take it unless you put the money in. We scrambled together enough and we got a loaf of bread and a bottle of milk and we survived. When we finished that year, guess how much money we had in the bank? $16,000. What did it cost us to go to theological college for the first year? Nothing. He can supply. He can resource you. God was teaching me, you can't outgive me. Be loyal, be faithful, break it, give it away, trust him. Time has gone, but I'm going to tell you this story too. 
our first church that were, we were pastoral couple together, in charge together with Seaforth Baptist Church. And we were there only for three years, but it was a great time. Lovely church, still love it. And, and the people were mainly elderly. There were 34 members. And they loved our kids and really nurtured us as a young pastoral couple. And anyway, they had a church and it was old theatre suits and it was a bit dingy and we wanted to bring it some life. And God was blessing and new people were coming and yada, yada, yada. And Rhonda was in charge of the play group and that was going gangbusters. And so we wanted to paint, we wanted to change the chairs, we wanted to do some other things. It was going to cost $8,000 back then. This is the 1980s. And we went to the members and the members gingerly went, okay. We had the $8,000 in the bank account. They'd been saving it up. They had enough money to pay for our costs to be there. And we said, let's just trust God and let's do that. We spent the $8,000. A week later, Open Doors Ministry, which was part of Seaforth Baptist, they were upstairs and rode their property. They gave us a gift of $8,000. You can't outgive God. When you do what he wants you to do, he goes before you. Will it always be easy and comfortable? No. You might be going through your sock drawers looking for coins at some point. But he knows and he cares. That's what this... This is just the first story. You didn't want to go anywhere else this morning, did you? <laughs> Let nothing be wasted to gather it up. The people saw the sign that he had performed. Uh, where did I go? That's fine. Uh, surely this is the prophet who, who's coming to the world. They got it. This is him. They got it physically, not spiritually. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him by force, he went up to a mountain by himself, like Moses. John doesn't tell us, but he tells the disciples, get in the boat and go back across the sea. And he turns to the crowd and he dismisses them. And then Jesus goes up the mountain by himself. What do we learn? From that story, I learned, don't be puzzled by tests. When God tests you, just trust him, just obey him. Philip and Andrew didn't have the faith to say, Lord, you can do it. But when he said, tell them to sit down in groups, they obeyed. When he said, take this and distribute it, they obeyed. Even when your faith is weak, obey. When you don't know why, obey. Just do what he wants you to do. That's what Mary says in John chapter 2, the wedding in Cana. They run out of wine, goes to Jesus, and she goes to the servants, and she says to the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. That's a great verse for us. Our inability is his opportunity. Jesus works through us and our surrendered resources. That's what he does. Jesus didn't do it himself. He broke it. He gave it to the disciples and they gave it to the people. And he still does that today. He gives me stuff which I give to you. It's not mine. It's his. That's him at work. He gives you stuff that you give to others. It's him at work through you. And he takes the little people. He used the kid and he wants to use you. When we yield and obey, he abundantly provides what is needed. Yield and obey. Lord, your will be done. Second section, Jesus walks on the water. We're going to have to go really quick. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, like he had told them to, get in the boat and go across to the other side. And they head for Capernaum, going home. Now it was dark, and Jesus hadn't joined them. They're in the boat, and they're in trouble. Uh, three or four, two or th in the first three hours or so, a strong wind comes up, and it's blowing against them. And when they had rowed about, I've got 10 or 11 kilometres, that's wrong. That's how wide the Sea of Galilee is. I did that wrong. They're halfway, so five or six k's. 
They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. John is telling us a succinct part of this story. <clears throat> he said to them, uh, don't be afraid, it's me, it's I. Don't be afraid. I am, he says. I am. Uh, then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were going. They obeyed Jesus. Get in the boat and go across. Their obedience led them into a storm. When we obey Jesus, sometimes that's going to lead us into a storm. Where is Jesus? On the mountain. What's he doing? Read the other Gospels. He's praying. He's talking to Heavenly Father and he's watching them in the middle, struggling. He is aware. And what's he doing? Waiting. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for the storm to achieve its purpose. If he, they obeyed him and they end up in a storm, it's because this is part of his plan. I don't know what's going on in your life, where you're at, what situation you're in, but he is aware and he is in control. And if you're in a difficulty at the moment, he is watching, praying for you, and waiting for this difficulty, whatever it is, before he intervenes. He will intervene. He will come. Do you need to hear from him? Because when he comes, you know, they were frightened and he said, it is I, don't be afraid. If you need to hear from him, tell him. Amidst the winds blowing and the waves rising and falling in your life, Lord, speak to me. Let me know that you are here. That's all we need. Remember the first lesson from Philip? Don't look at ourselves and our resources. It's really embrace him. Lord, if you're with me in this, if I have to go to hospital for an operation, I want you with me. I want you to know, and that'll give me peace and calm. We do get anxious and we do worry. We don't need to. We know it. We still do it though, don't we? Well, Jesus is saying to us, I don't want you to worry. I don't want you to be anxious. I'm not cranky at you if you are, but I have something better for you. Talk to me. Jesus got into the boat, and interestingly in this story, when Jesus gets in the boat, they're like halfway across the sea, and they're rowing, the wind is against them, and they can't make progress. As soon as Jesus gets in the boat, they're there. You read the text carefully, that's how it reads. When Jesus is in your boat, things look different, things go different. He can change circumstances, and he can change us without changing circumstances. We all need Jesus in. So number one, first story, don't be puzzled by tests, just obey him. Number two, don't be overwhelmed by the storms of life, just trust him. Trust him. Third one, bread of life. This is going to be lightning quick. Um, it's evening. Uh, did that. Sorry. Jesus gets out of the boat and it's the next day now and the crowd come and they follow him and they end up in a, in a synagogue in Capernaum where they have a conversation. In verse 25, they say, Lord, how did you get here? Because they wake up the next morning and he was gone. They knew that he didn't get in the boat. They didn't see him leave and suddenly he's here. It's like, how did you get here? He doesn't answer that question. He addresses another question, which is to do with their motivation. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs that I performed. You didn't get it. 
but because you're the lives that you had and feel your focus is all on this world, on earthly life, it's on the physical needs that you have. And I'm here to try to raise the agenda of spiritual needs. Don't work for food that spoils. The food that spoils is the food they got the day before, the physical, material. It's enjoyable and God wants us to have it and to enjoy it, <clears throat> but it spoils, it's temporary. What we should do, we should labour, work for the food that endures to eternal life, which he gives us. So they pick up on that idea of you need to labour for this, work for this. So he says, um, they say, what's the work that God wants us to do? What do we have to do? And Jesus corrects them and says, the work that God wants you to do is to believe. It's not doing, it's believing. Believing who I am, recognising who I am, following the signs that point to me. Don't be puzzled by tests, just obey him. Don't be overwhelmed by storms, just trust him. Don't be distracted by physical needs. Focus on your spiritual needs and believe in him. Get that right and then look after the other stuff it's not ignore the physical needs but it's prioritize your relationship with him and walk in trust and obedience to him god's recall notice in 2010 automatic uh, auto manufacturers throughout the world recalled a staggering something like 40 million cars for various defects just the thought of such a large number of cars on the road uh, with a defect is a little bit frightening. But what is even more frightening is the fact of the apathy of the response to that recall. In one instance, the executive director of the Center for Auto Safety in the US, this guy was, he warned the owners, it's a free repair, get it done, it'll save your life. Whether it was airbags or whether it was tires or brakes or whatever the fault was in the various vehicles, and yet, that despite all of the risks and despite the pleas and the media campaign that was done, 30% never responded. 30%. Likewise, many people ignore God's recall notice to the entire human race. Unlike a defect in an automobile, the moral defect of the human race is not his fault, it's our fault. God made us everything very good, but our sin has ruined it. And now God offers not just a free repair, but he offers a complete replacement, a new heart. Take out the heart of stone and give us a brand new heart. The old is gone, the new has come. This all comes through Jesus, who establishes the new covenant, reconnects us with God. Yeah. So don't ignore the Lord's call. It's a free and permanent remedy that God offers to us for our spiritual defects. Respond and listen to him. It'd be good to take some time, but I've used up most of our time it's for you to think, reflect and respond. There are questions available. Pick one of the stories, not all three, whichever one, and see what did God say to you and what does he want you to do out of that? Is it to trust him? Is it to obey him? Is it to focus on the spiritual needs in your life? What is it God wants for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this sto these stories and for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us and for us to have ears that hear and lives that will apply 
and obey. Heavenly Father, I do pray for those um, who find themselves in the midst of a test, a struggle, a hard time. I pray that you would help them to lift their eyes to you and to trust you, to obey whatever it is that you want of us. For those, Heavenly Father, who um, are in the midst of a storm, hard things are happening, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a, a difficulty at work, or whatever it is, a crisis, an overwhelming need, Lord, I pray that you would help them to look to you and to trust that you're in control, that you're working something out. Help us to cooperate with you. Or Lord, for those of us who are caught up in the things of this world, this life, in investing and in saving and in doing and enjoying, there are so many distractions. It's too easy for us, Lord, to lose focus on the spiritual priorities. Thank you that you do want us to enjoy this life. But even more, you know how much better it is that we enjoy life with you. So, Heavenly Father, help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And to love one another, to connect with one another. That's how you want us to live. Achieve and do these things, we pray, in the name of Jesus. And everyone said... We're going to conclude our service this morning just by me in a moment giving the benediction, but I invite you simply to either sit 